Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. My guest today is Nicholas Lyons, who is an autodidact and a polymath. He is a founder of a blockchain technology called Verus, and he is uh, what I like to think of as an applied philosopher, somebody who has taken the concept of consilience and tried to organize his life around it. His background um, in numerology and Kabbalah makes for an interesting story. So welcome, Nicholas. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction. I'm, I, uh, I think some of those things are flattering, um, but uh, I hope to, to live up to them. And I, 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 like, I aspire to those descriptions. Wonderful. So maybe just for the listeners who uh, are coming into this discussion without so much context, I'd love just the quick story of how you went from being a yeshiva student in England to getting into the work that you now do and just um, help me understand how the sort of through line of Judaism led you to Kabbalah, to numerology, to crypto. A good question and a wide question. Um, I think the best way to give my background is to understand that um, the end point and then work back from there. So the idea of consilience uh, for me is the unity of knowledge. And um, I think that, and I'm not expert on philosophy and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast very much and learning, but if I was to uh, think about the way that my applied philosophy works is this idea of reflexivity and uh, observing oneself. And so uh, I'm going to uh, sort of give the sort of journey um, in the way that I learned uh, about myself and, and why I came to this sort of um, this conclusion. So my earliest recollections um, uh, are living in a very happy uh Jewish family in North London to uh, two loving parents with uh, two sisters and um, being very privileged uh, to uh, only know uh, really happiness in that in, in that early phase of life and to be surrounded by a community of people which was very uh, small and sort of you could say it was parochial or but um, ultimately he gave a very sort of firm foundation and um, in uh, in those early years, I, I did have a, a strange event that happened to me. I broke my arm twice when I was six. And uh, during one of the, and I only remember this just recently, having listened to a number of people on your podcast answering questions. And um, and I, uh, when I was under anesthetic, I remember observing myself from the top of the room and from outside of the operating theater where I'd had my arm set. And I think uh, now thinking back as I was trying to work out how I came to these ideas, that this observer effect was something that had a big impact on me. And that had that from that moment on caused me to see myself as one uh, and the other. And uh, subsequent to that, I had had a number of uh, experiences um, that would not be from the normal information field. I had a premonition that my father would die at a young age uh, when I was nine. And I 
remember crying by the bed, you know, and he woke up with a start and I was like, well, you know, what's wrong? And I was like, you know, I'm afraid you're, you know, he was going to pass. So I had this sort of strange, uh, genesis and these, these sort of feelings. Um, and then, uh, as we grew up in, in from that environment, uh, we, I went to university and experienced uh, mainly a non-Jewish world. So I was within a Jewish world at that point and then a non-Jewish world. And, uh, from that, the university world, I uh, became a banker and then, uh, and that took me down the next, the next road. Uh, it's, it's, it's a sort of more detailed story, but it's the origin story of, of being reflexive that I think, uh, is, is, is what has taken me, uh, has brought me to where I am. Mm. So can you explain then the technology of Varus as it relates to reflexivity? And then, um, also in terms of this idea of consilience, the unity of knowledge, why does reflexivity play such an important role in that, um, in that concept for you? And just in terms of, I'll pile on a couple more questions, but like, how do we achieve a world of reflexivity if that is indeed the goal and why, why should that be the goal? Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to bring the stories of, you know, how these things came to me through, through time. But I would say that, um, consilience to me and the work of E.O. Wilson, uh, who was influential in, in sort of guiding my thinking to that, that must be the answer was all about saying that consilience means the unity of knowledge. And the unity of knowledge uh, in his framing was the reconciliation of the natural sciences and the social sciences. And that reconciliation appealed to me because coming from a religious background and coming from a world of, shall we say, more narrative driven when you're younger and you're not in the deep Kabbalistic elements, you're in the literal storytelling and the mythos, shall we say, and you're learning through uh, stories, my comprehension was affected deeply by the dissonance between the natural sciences and the religious ideas. And I wanted to solve the itch inside of me that said, well, I can't seem to marry up these concepts. I can't seem to get these ideas. And I wondered whether I could find answers through a myriad of traditions and a myriad of ideas and marry them together. And that unity of knowledge is really best understood as information or data. And the information that's in the field is cohering. It is coming together and it is coming together in powerful ways with the use of modern technologies, whether it's blockchain or AI or electoral reform or money. Those, the information is coming together. And as the information comes together, and if we say since 2007, we've got a superpower in our pocket, and that is that we have a device that augments our reality, we are effectively moving from being homo sapiens to homo proteus or augmented humans. And the augmentation is coming through our perception field. And so if consilience is about the unity of knowledge, the unity of knowledge stands on the fact that our perceptions control our behaviors. 
And if by corollary, therefore, our misperceptions create misbehaviors. And as more and more of our lives become more and more digital, the digital and the physical is merging. And there is a greater information field that is provable and uh, enables us to have, you know, even greater reflexivity or self-understanding. So if knowledge is power, then self-knowledge is self-empowerment. And that by looking at ourselves, we can grow ourselves. And by looking at ourselves relative to others, we can grow uh, our, our wider communities. And so we're closing trust gaps with verified information. But the problem of our systems today is that they're garbage in, garbage out. We don't know what information is true, and we fall for all sorts of stories that are not necessarily true. That's an interesting place to end on because so the democratic spirit, which I think powers some of this blockchain stuff, supposes that every individual can contribute to a collective effort of truth and sort of a la Karl um, Popper. We don't trust experts in the way that we used to. We don't. We don't look to philosopher kings to give us uh, to give us the truth. We we rather crowdsource it. Um, but if but if garbage in, garbage out, um, why should we prefer sort of this decentralized approach to truth as opposed to looking to enlighten the enlightened few to provide the truth? Well, I think that's you know a great question. Um, I think that we have to understand that there are three ways that we can cohere the information in, in the field. There is state-based surveillance, which is being operated by uh, various different countries. There's a form of corporate surveillance where we outsource the truth to Google or Apple or Wikipedia, etc. And then there's self-evident truth, which we establish for ourselves through coming to consensus. And so for me, uh, blockchain technologies are about uh, creating consensus and involving uh, everybody in, in maintaining that ledger of self-evident truth so that they feel that they have uh, the ability to check the record and that they also have ability to um, cohere the information in the field. Why would we trust people to... to come to consensus or said differently, why should we expect that the consensus that people come to is of much value at all, um, given how polarized we are on the things that most seem to matter to us? Like, isn't there a watering down of truth if we just say um, the truth that is self-evident is the truth that all people agree upon? So, uh, I think that people um, assume that we're going to come to giant truths through, uh, you know, large leaps. But I think that it's more about knowing that the information that we use to come to decisions is accurate so that the input data is accurate. So if we understand the, uh, the idea is to be a self-sovereign conscious agent so that we can determine ourselves, so we have free will, et cetera, and that we want to be able to um, use our perceptions, our, our five senses, plus some inherited learning to experience the world. And then we're going to make decisions that are based on those experiences 
And then we're going to take the next action and we're going to give imbue that next action with some sort of energy, whether that's words, ideas, uh, you know, actions uh, that, that change things. And so I think that what the technology can do and what the, you know, a true public blockchain can enable is that we can trust the inputs to the system so we can evolve our existing world. So a lot of people are, you know, wanting to burn the entire system down. And my viewpoint is that we can use these technologies to evolve from where we are and enable us to elect better leaders based on manifesto promises that are measurable and that they can, you know, we can understand the nuance of the information in the field. So use information to come to better decisions together. Got it. So I, I see how it would be valuable, very valuable to make sure that we have correct information as opposed to misinformation um, circulating and achieving a kind of consensus or validation. But I still feel that there's a distinction between, as Max Weber says, fact and value or, or is and ought. Um, and so if the consensus can help us understand the facts of the case, it doesn't necessarily tell us what to do on the basis of those facts, what to value, what to prioritize. And I'm concerned um, that if we tried to make those things consensus, we would be creating something totalitarian or like the Tower of Babel, where we're forcing value-based judgments into an algorithm, as opposed to allowing the dignity of difference to um, to riff on Jonathan Sachs to be manifest in the fact that people value different things and that's okay. I agree with you. I think that I think that um, the danger of having a single solution um, that you know that says, "Oh, Bitcoin is going to solve the problem," or Ethereum is going to be the world computer, is not the way. I think that great innovations are used to. Um, collaborate and cooperate and scale to uh, allow for diversity. So if you think about the evolution of our economic system and at the time of Adam Smith in 1776, and he, uh, you know, notes the beginning of, of economics and the corporation and the idea of incorporation. And it's a way to get people to collaborate through incentive design. So I think that, you know, good systems will have incentives built into them and enable if they are truly the right solutions that anybody can create a company so you can have a company and you can be coca-cola and then someone could come and say oh i'd like to be pepsi and you can get a different drink right and it enables you know it's still you might want sugary fizzy drinks that's fine but it enables the economy to grow so the, the technology that enables us to scale will be fractal. So it'll be similar to nature and will be fractal and enable people to imbue the effort with energy. And that energy has value. The value it has is reflexive. It's the value to you. So that's what the internet has shown is there's lots of people that like cats. There's lots of people that like dogs. There's lots of people, etc. And And they form their own communities. And those own, those communities have the value of culture and the culture uh, is reflective of the members etc and so you can have a technology that enables everybody to own their fair share and to allow them to uh, benefit from the energy of 
their, let's call it, network economy. And, and that economy is not necessarily financial. It's not necessarily economic. You know, the value is the value to you. Going back to reflexivity, why is reflexivity good rather than just neutral? So, for example, um, you take the, uh, yourself with a broken arm. You have an experience as a six-year-old of, I am both a person in pain with this broken arm. I am also the subject observing that experience that is not the one having that experience. Maybe the one observing the experience is saying, oh, I have a broken arm and, you know, I, I feel sad or I, you know, I feel ashamed or wh whatever it is, or I'm nervous. What, when am I going to heal? That's a different part of the self than the one that's just having the, you know, having the experience of the broken arm. But like, if it's garbage in, garbage out, then people who are reflexive will just become a more self-aware of the fact that they're garbage, but it won't actually take away the garbage. In other words, the conscience function won't necessarily remove the distortion. It will just amplify the distortion. So reflexivity in and of itself is, you know, in the Eastern tradition would be regarded as awareness. And part of awareness is obviously the ability to reflect on yourself and the ability to reflect on yourself enables you to, I think, evaluate and grow. So I don't think reflecting on yourself is necessarily, it needs to be a spiral loop of negativity. And I think that the, the key benefit of understanding self and other is that you are valuable as an individual, but you're even more valuable as part of a collective. And the positioning as part of a collective is a form of attraction and a form of love. And, and that connectivity, I think, is the key to bringing people into positive loops and positive engagement. And I think that my experience as a child of being part of a community and a community that is minded to encourage you and help you, whatever that community might be, is something that we've lost in our societies. We've had reflexivity for a long time. So meditation is a very old practice, but even if you take art, um, if you take like uh, Tom Hanks and, and Castaway drawing a smiley face on the volleyball and calling it Wilson, right? This totemic urge in primitive societies to um, personify um, objects, personify the natural world, or even deify those things. You could argue that all art in some ways continues that desire for reflexivity to look at something and see an aspect of yourself in it. Um, what is new about the internet or about blockchain relative to just this older history of reflexivity? Why do you think that technology or contemporary technology, uh, let's say in the past 20 years or the next 50 years, will bring a, uh, a shift in the human condition as compared to just the long sweep of uh, developments in terms of self-consciousness. Like already Hegel in the, in the 19th century described history as a process of self-understanding, progressive self-understanding through contradictions. Um, why, why why do we think that it will be sort of different in the 21st century? The reason why it's different 
is because, like I said before, since 2007, we've been walking around with a supercomputer in our pocket. And that supercomputer, that iPhone or that smartphone, has augmented who we are. And what we have is, like, as you said, we, we live in mirror consciousness. We live in a reflective way and, and our uh, perceptions control our behaviors and our misperceptions create misbehaviors. And with that powerful computer in our pocket, we have fallen into a natural desire to conserve energy and save time and use the services that have been offered to us for free. So the freemium model of the internet, so the evolution from web 1.0 to the advertising-based internet has led to the collation of giant amounts of data about us all and that there are governments and corporations that own those large pools of data and the the fact that they control our perception fields because we're receiving our news from twitter or our information from facebook it effectively changes our perceptions of reality and we can no longer tell what is true or false we can no longer so i think post 2007 we were post truth and i think since the end of the pandemic we're post trust and when you don't know what's true and when you don't know who to trust then you have a significant crisis point for society and what people do is they can outsource to strong men or extremism or they can have an extremely fractured sense of identity and have many different identities. And I think that that effectively creates polarization and a lack of cohesion. And so the opportunity is to embrace technologies that allow us to own our own information and understand ourselves as individuals and part of the collective. You said that um, misperception drives misbehavior, and I can see how that would be true in a lot of cases, but just to give the counter a counter argument. Um, so when I was uh, interning as a chaplain and I would visit the sick and dying, I spent some time with um, old folks who had dementia, and I would say, um, depending on depending on your view of dementia, like there's a lot of misperception there. So I would visit an old woman who um, thought that I was a relative of hers, even though um, even though I was not, obviously. And um, every time I would visit, I'd visit once a week. It would be the same conversation over and over again. Although I would, you know, vary it up just to kind of see what would come out based upon, you know, slight tweaks in the conversation. But there was a kind of algorithm, a kind of script that was like uh, almost talking to me like I'm her grandson and I'm going to give her the update on, you know, am I married yet? Like, where do I live? How's my house? You know, th those kinds of the same questions that that would show concern. Um, and I indulged those questions because I felt that the um, the truth of the matter was more the energy between us, or let's say the connection, and the fact the fact based aspect of the conversation was not quintessential to it. Uh, of course, if I I could imagine if I were an actual relative of 
of that person, it would it could be quite frustrating um, because you you would want to correct that person and say no, you know that's not that's not who you think it is. But then you see those kinds of relationships transpire where people do go into fact finding mode and debating facts, um, and it's not so constructive, and it usually just leads to frustration and like zero sum sort of either I'm right or I'm wrong, like either I'm correct or I'm an idiot. And where does that actually lead then in terms of the connection? So what do you think, like, obviously maybe for an old woman, the stakes are low, but is it condescending to treat people more in accordance with this desire to connect and sort of what, who cares what the facts are? Or do you think we should be um, concerned with the truth because as you were implying before misbehavior follows from misperception yeah um i only use misperceptions uh create misbehaviors as a corollary to perceptions uh controlling Mm. behaviors and so and it's within the concept of the self-sovereign conscious agent theorem which is built on hoffman's conscious agent theorem that that is that we have uh, an input field, which is our five senses plus some inherited learning. And so it's that input field that if we misperceive something through the input field, it will affect our decisions and we'll get effectively uh, a, a bad output. So in in respect of the point you were making about the, 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 the lady with dementia, uh, my aunt had dementia. And uh, when I visited with her, I, I understood that her perception field was not connecting with her abilities to communicate. She was not able to communicate with us, but I did feel that she was uh, there and her agonizing to talk to us certainly made me uh, feel that she was desperate to say something, but that she had lost the connection between the um, motor skills and, and her ability to see or her ability to hear. Um, and so uh, that's the way I would regard misperceptions and, uh, and misbehaviors. Um, in terms of what we see in society, I think we need to understand that when we are post-truth and post-trust, the important thing is to be able to ascertain from somebody information that you can verify and that once you are verified you can move to trust very quickly so what i believe is that if you can verify information as being true and whether it's the state that does it or whether it's a corporate that does it is important from a political perspective and from a freedom perspective but let's just say if we know that that is possible because we are cohering with the digital field and everything we're doing is is captured somehow in a device in a database, then if we can close trust gaps, if you can believe what I say because I can prove to you using fully private zero-knowledge technology, which is the latest technology that enables this, then if I can get you to a position of trust verifiably, privately, more quickly, you will be able to collaborate and cooperate at scale with people across a whole wide, a wider array of different opinions and different diversities. And so it's that perception that will improve. And we will see that, you know, what uh, connects us is far greater than what separates us. So obviously like writing the printing press, 
um, the post office, uh, certain, there have been many technologies that have transformed the way that we communicate with one another and have uh, elevated trust. Um, you could you could say modern economies run on trust as well. Um, at the same time, though, it seems like culture is the driver of trust more than technology. Technology is downstream of culture. So if there, if you live in a trustless society, um, no, it, it doesn't really matter whether you have um, the ability to prove or validate something. Um, people need to buy in, and if they don't buy in, then it's not going to work. So I think I could maybe make this concrete, but like. Mm -hmm. Take it. Take an example uh, like Gnosticism. So in Gnosticism, there's a view that um, the world we're living in is an illusion. Um, it, maybe it's also demonic in some ways, and we're fundamentally deceived. Like this is Descartes' second meditation flirts with with Gnosticism and radical skepticism. But essentially, the world as we experience it is the work of the devil. Um, and maybe there are a couple clues um, scattered throughout the world for initiates to follow and for esoteric. Um, minded people to follow that can liberate them from this from this prison that is the world and and have them connect with God the Father or you know the, the heavenly truth. But but for most people we don't get there. A Gnostic claims to know this and claims to have access to the knowledge and practices that will liberate him or her from this prison. But if you say, well, how do you know that and how can you prove it? Um, unless you are already bought into that frame, you're just they're not, nothing they say is going to be compelling. And so um, it doesn't really matter whether they have writing, whether they have the telegram, whether they have blockchain. Um, there's just this fundamental a priori schism between what they regard as a legitimate proof or legitimate self-evidence and what a non-Gnostic does. How will we ever bridge that so-called trust gap? So you're saying that radical skepticism means that you cannot be part of a system that is designed to provide self-evident truth because they won't agree to the truths correct that i think i think that there's enough there's enough supply of radical skepticism in the world this is a deep-seated theology that you could find in pretty much any tradition um, and it's, there's always going to be a certain attractiveness to this amongst a certain segment of the population so if that's a cultural or psychological tendency, then mm -hmm. I just don't see how, let's say, coming up with rules of logic, for example, um, as we did in the ancient world, or whether it's rules of modern communication, or whether it's rules of journalism, or whether it's rules of some blockchain uh, protocol are gonna solve this fundamental suspicion that the Gnostic has towards the world and that a non-Gnostic would have towards the Gnostic suspicion of the world. Essentially, if you want to think of Gnosticism in more contemporary terms, think of almost like conspiracy theorists. Maybe a conspiracy right. theorist will, will cite some evidence for their conspiracy. But at the end of the day, if you press hard enough, they're just going to say, I know it because I know it. And, and right. for them, that's enough. Whereas right. if you're not persuaded, it's not enough. So how right. will technology ever heal that gap? So again, I, I think we have to understand that anyone who's got a philosophy has got a whole theory of mind, it seems to me, and that it's almost like economists that they have this sort of ketteris paribus you know, uh, requirement, which is everything being equal, it looks like this. But because everything is moving and you've got this sort of uncertainty principle that applies and 
you've got an observer effect which could be self-selecting and you know you have all of these features of humanity i think you have to go back to the system that says i would like the inputs to be you know that the inputs that can be certified or verified it should give me the basis for making better decisions so i think it's about evolution i don't think there's a a panacea you know solution that anybody's going to come up with i think the innovation is so you said before you know you start with the uh, fire and then you get to uh, m- you know uh, language and then you get to uh, manuscript and then you get to the printing press and then you get to the internet but then you don't know what's true anymore because anyone can choose any information in the field and that's really what you're saying the gnostic is doing it's so i'm i'm self-selecting a story and that sort of fits at the heart of the conscious agent theorem and the self-sovereign conscious agent theorem is the idea of fitness versus truth and that's what you say versus what you do and in a world that you have to engage in time and space and you have measurements of how you spend your time and you have you know a- ability to know you know who you spend your time with you get a very strong picture of you know wilson's world you know gene culture coevolution you're the protein in a culture and that that culture shaping you, whether it's the hours you are spending on TikTok or whether it's the hours you're listening to, uh, you know, Plato, uh, whatever it might be, those inputs uh, are information in the field that can be cohered and you can understand yourself better and you can also contribute that data to the wider field. And it would say people who are spending their time doing X, you know, are generally more Y and that just gives you information. And at that point, it, to your point about Gnostics or whoever else, you have the ability to ask deep questions as a service. And, and that's the way that I think about this. Once you get the information field filled out with verified true information, it's not really about the information. And I think I heard you say it before, I think some philosophers said it, it's not about the, the data. It's not about the information. It's about the questions you ask. And so, people will be able to ask, like they're asking ChatGPT, questions of themselves. Now, ChatGPT is a model that enables you to sort of ask questions of the collective because it's built on a, you know, data from the internet, in inverted commas. But we don't know what the information on the internet is, you know, percentage is accurate versus lies, which is why you get bias in these machines. So, or in these, um, in, in these processes. So I think that it changes from the bottom up and the questions, you know, are how we will find ourselves. They are reflections in that, in a digital mirror or what they call the black mirror. Let's shift a little bit to the topic of consilience. Although I know all of our um, lines of questioning are sort of fractal and, and contain one another. um, So, there's a saying by Archilochus, the ancient uh, Greek poet, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And Isaiah Berlin uh, wrote an essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, um, sort of applying that distinction to all kinds of writers and philosophers. Um, some, some have one overarching thesis and theme, others um, dabble in lots of different worlds and don't necessarily connect them. I recently found out, I was reading a book by John Gaddis, a professor at Yale. He wrote a book on grand strategy, and he suggested that um, 
if you want to forecast the future, you're going to be much better if you are a fox than if you're a hedgehog. Typically, hedgehogs are so caught up in their grand narratives about what's true that they're not very good at understanding the sort of world as it is. Um, of course, on the other side, foxes might be really good predictors of the future um, because they see the complexity of the field, but they're not necessarily great moral leaders because they're sort of caught up in this realism and they don't actually know the aspiration. I think the metaphor he gave was a hedgehog can tell you where true north is on a compass, um, but the fox can tell you that if you follow the compass, you're going to you know, fall into a swamp. Um, and that you actually need to sort of go east or go west in order to get to <laughs> the North Star. Um, so just with that as a metaphor, if do you think consilience harmonizes the hedgehog and the fox? Because my sort of bias when I hear the concept of the unity of knowledge is that it sounds a bit hedgehoggy. And so it's like, yeah, that's a nice concept, just like, you know, true north is a nice concept. But how does it actually help us in the world um, where we don't operate according to the compass? Mm. Yeah, I think that you can see the fox as the wide view and the uh, information field. And of course, there is a limit, you know, in terms of time of how much of a hedgehog you can be in each linear discipline. Um, and so the fox is wide and shallow and the hedgehog is narrow and deep. Is that that's the sort of way that I think about it? Um, I think that the idea of consilience is to create a reconciliation between uh, all of the information fields. And so, if we said you've got the natural sciences, which speak in the language of mathematics, and the social sciences, which have uh, a language of uh, well, of abstraction and, and to some extent they move towards mathematics. Most, uh, most, uh, I would say in the, uh, in the field of economics, which is, uh, the way that seems maths and humans cohere. And I think that the benefit of having a reductive theory, and that's what I think, uh, the idea of self-sovereign conscious agency is, is to say that you are having a unique experience. You're having it in time and space as mediated by your five senses and some of your inherited learning. And you're making decisions that affects the next step on a chain that is a, a link chain of events. And that, so you're, you're a hedgehog in your own life, right? And you've got a wide array of decisions that you can make that are, you know, either deepen your enjoyment or lessen your enjoyment. And I think people are, are, are reacting to uh, those incentives and they are, most people are relatively simple in their following, you know, Hofstadter's idea of being a meaning seeking machine. And we see, we label and we judge and we seek pleasure and we avoid pain. And so uh, our pathway is, um, extremely wide and narrows as we make choices. And every, you know, you can think of every choice as a wave collapse in a way, because you have this array of probabilities that become, because you're measuring them, because you're 
entering into whatever it might be. And the more you enjoy it, the more you engage with it. And I think that it's just about um, what phase of life you're in, whether you're more of a fox or more of a hedgehog. And I think that I heard someone was happy to start out as a fox and become a, a hedgehog and felt that that was, um, that was a positive transition. And I, and I, I would say that you might look at it as, you know, being, uh, the, the, the idea of a, a caterpillar and a butterfly, as opposed to a fox and a hedgehog mm. is that you have to go through a lot of, you know, internal machinations to end up, you know, changing character completely and becoming, uh, and taking flight and becoming a butterfly. But I think that that's what we all do. The question is, how long are you in the cocoon for and how much information do you need to, through experience to come to a, uh, come to a, a view, whatever that view might be. What is success look like for you? Um, and specifically in the context of the technology that you've committed your life to creating, I mean, it, in terms of the market cap of Varus and in terms of how many people are using Varus, in terms of the use cases that are being built out, um, it seems like it's very much in the early innings. Do you feel that your sense of success is predicated upon a certain mass adoption? Or do you feel that it will have been worthwhile regardless of you know, hmm. what happens in your lifetime because the effort was inherently worthwhile? Well, it, so first of all, I'm uh, I'm not one of the founders. There's very technical terms in technology. Uh, I'm not one of the founders. I joined the project in uh, about six months in, and uh, I'm a contributor and a community member. And the founder group includes, um, you know, uh, a wide array of different people with different ideas. So it's certainly, um, you know, something that I believe in that uh, that I think is a. a, a major innovation so i think the best way to to reflect on what what is success so i think that that's a place that one can you know look back and i would have said that my first work experience was on the you know uh black monday in 1987 my uh my second work experience uh, was uh, on the day that george soros broke the bank of england on the 16th of september of 1992 and I had seen the effect that um, economics had had on my family, on my own father, and the stress that uh, that was created through these events that came through the markets. And then I became a banker, and I became involved in capital creation, and uh, then I became a systematic hedge fund manager, and uh, and then became interested in cryptography around two thousand and seven. And obviously, Bitcoin uh, came into being. 2008-9 and um, that innovation I believe changed something in the world. I think that most people don't they see it as this idea of having a, a, a new store of value or digital gold or some other idea like uh, th that but I think if you look at it for its innovation what it enables is Moore's Law and Metcalfe's Law which is the um, the the expansion of computation capability and the expansion of communications capability to enable people to collaborate and cooperate 
in a trustless environment. And that trustless environment means that we can, using mathematics, work with anyone anywhere across the world and collaborate with them anywhere across the world. So that's the fundamental innovation. What Veris does is understand that fundamental innovation and says we need critical primitives like identity and peer-to-peer exchange ability and uh, the ability to create a multi-chain future so that there is a, like you can have many companies, you can have many blockchains and many ways of ensuring that people can collaborate and cooperate without necessarily interacting in physical space. That's what it really does. And so when you think about that and you think about community building and you think about business building or any other type of collective endeavor, that's a a very special innovation. And so what is success Um, for me? Yes, of course, more people learning to use the technology and using it to enable greater collaboration and cooperation. That's great. But I think that if we understand what the future offers in terms of the alternatives between having a social credit system or a corporate surveillance system that infringes on our privacy and infringes on our ability to come to consensus and to make sense and find what is true and come to truths, which you're right in saying previously that, you know, truths are, uh, you know, subjective because people self-select into truths. And so the only way we can go forward in the society is that if we decide that we need to become self-determining uh, and we call that self-sovereignty, and that's where it sort of links over to the Kabbalistic where you've got this idea of, you know, uh, sovereignty and free will and all of those, uh, those types of ideas. So success for me would be seeing the world being able to collaborate and cooperate more efficiently and close those trust gaps and experience life from a perspective of having accurate perceptions. And I think there's nothing you know more delightful than having expectations met. And if someone goes above and beyond expectations, we're of course delighted. And so I think that that's a, you know, that success for me would be to see that a technology has enabled us to have less misbehaviors and less misperceptions and realize we are all really the same, you know, and that goes back again to, you know, the ideas of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and Jonathan Sachs ideas of morality as being an emergent feature and, you know, Einstein's ideas of love equals uh, MC squared. Can you just, um, help me understand the Kabbalistic dimension of your thinking. How is, how is cryptography related to Kabbalah for you? So a long uh, subject, but I think that the critical idea that appealed to me in the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of transformation um, that is credited to Abraham, but the earliest record I think is like 500, something like that, or minus 500, I don't know exactly, you might know, um, is that it understands that and explains that words or thoughts, words and actions are the um, power that uh, creates our reality and that 
it encodes everything in uh, the 22 letters and the 10 spherot, or uh, you could think of that as just base 10. And so with the combination of letters and numbers, it is, you know, very reminiscent, of course, of what coding is. It is the combination of words. And that's why various, it's very important to understand as a, you know, that's why I didn't comment about, you know, the market cap or any of that. That's, that's irrelevant. That's, that's a sort of side product of what it does, um, in order that it creates a security budget. But the, um, the words, are free open source software, and that's free as in free speech. And so words have power is a theme that has been transmitted across all time. And when I was trying to cohere and find consilience amongst the ancient texts and the modern world, it was the comprehension that free open source software is a composition of words that enables humans to collaborate and cooperate at scale remove trust gaps, remove misperceptions, and enable us to verify and then trust at the speed of the infrastructure. And so the connection is in the, not only in the ideas that stem from that book and that work, but the, the fundamental idea is that the programming language for humans are words and they have power. Like you said, mimetically, you have to get people to believe in you and you have to you get them to believe that, to trust in you. But the beauty of the system is that it's mathematics. And so in the same way, you don't have to get people to believe in electricity. You know, they can, they can feel it, right? And they can see it. And in the same way, uh, what this technology does is it makes truths self-evident and and unforgeable that gives you a great basis for you know taking risk and taking you know a trust leap and that creates a lot of positivity for the world this is somewhat ironic then well just to respond to the point about the connection between kabbalah and and coding i know um gershom sholem i think in the maybe in the seventies or eighties said um, that he thought that the, the first computer was like a golem because just as the golem was composed of um, Hebrew letters brought to life that similarly the ones and zeros um, that go into making a computer are kind of like bringing it to life. Um, there's a phenomenon in crypto, but not just in crypto that also in startups in general and even some publicly traded companies where um the line between truth and fraud is uh somewhat murky and again this is not uh <laughs> you know when, when that the, the way that came out was was somewhat imprecise but essentially like if you take um a startup founder you know um one of their jobs is to hawk the product um, mm -hmm. And to tell you how it's the Messiah, to tell you how it's going to, you know, bring about some revolution. And mm -hmm. if they didn't tell you that and they weren't persuasive, their product wouldn't get mass adoption and then it would die. So they, in order to be a good founder, they have to tell you why it's this amazing thing. But the truth is that the thing isn't actually amazing as it stands. It will only be amazing 
maybe, maybe in the future. And um, only if lots of true believers come and say, yeah, this thing is amazing in the go and sort of evangelize for it. So if you, you want to, you know, take Elon Musk with Tesla or whether you want to take Adam Newman with WeWork or whether you want to take, you know, Dogecoin or, or, or whatever, you know, Ethereum, whatever it is, um, in order for these things to work, it's not it's not to say you can't have a Ponzi scheme that's just fundamentally flawed. But some mm-hmm. of these things, it's hard to say what's Ponzi and what's not because, and I, Matt Levine has written about this, because the structure of the Ponzi scheme is actually necessary to give it the capital, the, the low cost of capital and, and the tremendous buy-in and the infusion of talent that allows it to have a chance at success. So I just mm-hmm. find it ironic when we're talking about technologies that are supposed to close trust gaps, that for many of them to actually work, there has to be a trust that in some sense is unearned. You might say in Amuna. Um, in Jewish terminology, that makes it so. Um, but but of course, we won't actually know whether the Amuna makes it so or not uh, until some years in the future. So I guess when we're dealing with speculation, um, it's, it's difficult to even say um, where the line is between uh, valid trust and speculative trust, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I do. So I think there's a couple of things. There's some structural pieces to that that one could address, which is how do people acquire network effects? So, uh, and is that a, that, that's a feature of the last era? And, um, and also some of the behaviors are a feature of that era. So if you look at web two, the entire idea and Peter Thiel, who is the doyen of this and, you know, wrote a book in, on, again, 16th of September, published of 2014, zero to one, wrote a handbook, a manual that some criticized as being sort of too abstract. But when I read it, I was like, this guy's just told everybody exactly what the secret source is. And, um, and it's pretty interesting. And the key part of Web 2 was to spend a giant amount of money that was money that was coming from limited partners um, who put money into funds. And those funds would essentially find a good idea and then essentially buy the network by subsidizing the service. So whether you look at Uber, you know, people love the service and they also love the price. And it, you know, created a network effect and everybody uh, started using Uber and then there was an old competing business in, in Lyft, et cetera, that, that came along. So the problem of Web2 is that it needs vested interest capital in order to buy a network effect and then, you know, exploit the network effect, charge rent from the walled garden that they call it, that, that they've created. And rightly so, because they invested the money, they created the network effect, and now they're going to tax the network effect. And so everything that goes alongside that is in service of attracting attention and getting people to buy your service uh, on the basis of screaming and shouting and saying, we're the greatest, we're the greatest. And there is a gap between, you know, uh, maybe truth and fiction or, you know, uh, theory and practice and, and reality. In the case of Web3 or the Internet of Value or the blockchain, you have to look at it on uh, a much more fundamental level. It's enabling people to participate by using their mobile phone, 
in the case of Verus, you can mine on a, an Android phone or a, a Rock Pi, or at the lowest unit of compute power to participate in a network. And one of the big issues that I had to face in the beginning was, you know, well, how do you compete with the freemium model? How do you compete with some, you know, someone who's providing you a valuable service like Google provides you the valuable service for free? What is better than free? I mean, that was the problem that was set forth between before everybody who moved into saying, what's the internet going to evolve to is you're competing with people that are offering a valuable service for nothing. And the only thing that is better than free is if you pay me. If you pay me, that is better than free. And so the exchange that is going on in the real evolution of the internet is that people can participate in network economies instead of being trapped. So instead of being slaves in a network effect where you are the uh, opportunity to, you know, for, for the corporate to charge you rent, the new model is that you can participate in that economy and you receive your fair share for your contribution and for your, you know, the contribution of your information to the collective and for your contribution of resources if it, if you are uh, running the software. And so it's fundamentally different in that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, shall we say, is that the more people that join the network, the more value is created. So the, like, the more companies that are created, the more, more the economy grows, even if they're successful or they're unsuccessful, it doesn't really matter. The, the, the fact is that when you build a technology that's built for usage and that it's powering a fundamental thing of value, and that's a namespace and the ability to prove information verifiably and privately, that is uh, about being a cheaper, faster, more secure way of uh, participating in, in, in the network of the future. Is that another way of saying that a person who uses, let's say, Google search is a kind of employee of Google, um, a laborer on behalf of Google, but Google is extracting the value from that, whereas the laborer is just um, getting very little in exchange for using the search. But um, with some of these uh, Web3 offerings, you get equity. So you, you're almost like a partner in the project as opposed to just an, a contractor for it. If you're doing it properly, you wouldn't refer to it as equity because it's not uh, a security. You know, ideally, it's that you're contributing to a network and you, the, the network is, you know, the network is growing and the the value mm. of your membership is, you know, is 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 growing alongside it. But isn't that yes. a kind of conceptual equity, though? Because it, it, you're relating to yes. it. You're relating Absolutely. to it as a partner. You're a partner in yes. the project rather yes. than, let's say, disposable. Absolutely. You are participating in the network and you have value. And, you know, uh, we like to say that, you know, all information is valuable, but the truth is priceless. So people will naturally want to opt into an information, you know, space that is true and verified. And every corporation would want to ask you questions that they know that they can get true answers for, um, rather than just trying to guess uh, about so you. So... 
how yes, is that participation? How is that that different than let's say power users on social media? So if you take like Reddit, for example, they give mm-hmm. out karma yeah. to people who answer questions on Reddit threads. And so there's this kind yes. of like prestige or cloud that you can get from being a person who mm-hmm. um, is an early adopter of the platform and then provides value on that platform. Um, a, lot of, a lot of a lot of products um, that are trying to build network effects do reward, let's say, power users with some kind of partnership. Well, that's exactly uh, the future. The future is to understand that there are, you know, critical stakeholders and the community, the employees, the equity owners in traditional. They are all part of the the future, and it is about how you incentivize people to be. Uh, part of that community and they benefit from being loyal to that community. So much in the same way that, you know, the money that is made in the automotive industry is made in the financing of the automotive and the lease rather than in the, you know, making of the car and the, you know, it's in the, in, in the finance and in the servicing. In the same way, the future for corporations, I believe, will be in financing their customers and, uh, and enabling them to participate in what Toffler referred to as the economy of me and we. And so that's really what I think that the conception we need to come to greater understanding of. And I think that happened in the pandemic is that you're not just the guy that wears the suit and tie and goes to work. That's like a, that's like a, a, a you know, a, a, a costume, a world mask uh, in uh, Akiva Tatz's words, right? You're, it's a mask you're putting on. But when everyone went home in the pandemic and they had the dog barking and the children running in the background, everyone saw that, oh, you know, the person who's in, in charge of the economy is also, uh, you know, has many roles. And that's why we call our company uh, that, that builds on top of this open protocol archetype is to understand that we all have multiple personalities, many archetypes, you know, you're a father, a son, a brother, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you're, you don't just have one perspective. And I think that more and more people are realizing that, you know, life is a game, you know, that um, is played when value is, you know, abstracted into money, but is the, the critical element that is driving the world and I think it's, you know, it's an additional um, force. So, you know, I think it's important that we learn that the, the whole idea is to benefit all of us and to collectively uh, evolve our systems, our democracies, our laws. You know, don't, we don't need to destroy them. We just need to get better information, better inputs, better outputs, you know, more truth and, and, and more reconciliation of the, the differences between people. You work in finance, although I know that's not, you know, exactly how you see it, but you certainly have a background in finance. And when I think of, sure. you know, Wall Street and finance, like I don't exactly think of Kumbaya. Um, mm-hmm. Now I'm not saying what you're saying is Kumbaya, but there is an aspect of like, we're all in this together and sort of the coll- the power of the collective. When you talk, like I, you know, there's an aspect of it that speaking of archetypes, like makes me think of like, you know, Che Guevara or something sort of more, uh, more young. What's that? Or of young. Yeah. Of young, but, but something of like, uh, so of, of, a, of an assumption that human nature is good. If only we could mobilize it for the good, um, as opposed to sort of, you know, that, that more competitive, uh, 
archetype that you typically see in places where it's like, you know, my promotion is your loss and, and sort of that, um, the sort yeah, of like human, human nature and that is kind of animalistic and competitive and there are winners and losers. So like, have you always sort of had this more positive view of human nature or what do you do with that negative aspect of human nature? Cause I think like one of the arguments in favor of capitalism is sort of human beings are wicked or vicious, but like capitalism gives us a positive outlet for that by harmonizing our incentives. So in other words, we're, we're always going to be competitive and status seeking and like zero sum, but somehow capitalism al allows us to work together. I don't know if, if you have thoughts on just like the temperament needed yeah. to, to be collaborative versus the temperament needed to succeed are those intention. So I think that, you know, the zero sum game era is, you know, a, a, a feature that will continue and there are winners and losers. And, you know, it's certainly um, capitalism is competitive. But I do think that in an era where we're entering into um, a world of AI, as you well know, um, that is going to level the playing field and also um, skew the playing field because there are going to be people who have superpowers powered by the sum of all human knowledge competing against people that don't have the sum of all human knowledge. Now, at the moment, we see the asymmetric power of Google and, and, and Facebook and Amazon to um, set pricing and to, you know, to influence events. And I think that with AI, that gets stronger and stronger. And also, it also levers the playing field because it should be that um, everybody should be able to benefit from those AIs if they were public AI. And there's some debate on public AI and, and private AI, which, which we can leave aside. But I think that um, we have to realize that we're moving into a future where more and more is going to be um, achieved through um, artificial intelligence. And I think that lesson, we've been through the era of mechanization. We are dealing with the issues around financialization and the new era is going to require that we have some very clear thinking about how we plan to deal with humanity's core needs, which are obviously education, healthcare, uh, food and shelter. And I, th I think that what we will learn from an information space that is more accurate is that we are misallocating a lot of our resources at the moment and that we will actually learn to better allocate our resources. So the idea that our philosophies and our ideas will not evolve or that will stay the same in a world where the information space has improved, the prediction space has improved, I think we can expect the outcomes to improve. The issue of whether we have massive inequality and someone you know, dominating that space is really a question of how we choose to participate. There is a choice in front of us and technologies like Verus enable us to opt into a, a world where the 99% can compete with the 1% by grouping together. So it's not kumbaya, it's rational self-interest when people realize that they're either gonna join the you know the community or they're going to be exploited by the state or they're going to be exploited by corporations for profit so i think the choices will become easier and it will be the classic 
fear and greed motivators that will be the incentives that will drive people towards, you know, making the most of every day for themselves. Why should I be the product when I, and I can own the product? Okay. So last question, um, with Passover coming up, um, one of the themes in that story is the idea that yes, slavery is terrible and, um, it would be better to be in the promised land, but psychologically leaving what you know for what you don't know is very hard. And so 80%, um, it's estimated by commentaries of the Israelites who were enslaved, never left Egypt because they preferred the known oppression um, that was predictable to the unknown journey of the desert. Um, and then yeah. those who did leave um, spent 40 years in the desert complaining that things were better in Egypt, where at least they knew what to expect. Um, let's let's accept the vision that you've you know offered us. Um, what to do with this human psychology that seems quite resistant to the unknown and to change. In other words, um, maybe there is a longing to change the way that we allocate resources. Maybe there is a longing to move from being the product to being a co-owner in the product. Um, and yet, given that this is what we've been doing, um, there's a certain status quo bias. So how do you see that status quo bias changing? So great observation. And I think there's plenty to learn from uh, the story of uh, Egypt and the story of, you know, the, um, the process of going to Egypt as uh, a tribe and becoming a people and then a nation and then a state. And so I think, again, it's an evolutionary process. And, you know, the first movers, I think, started a, a long time ago in this, you know, it, it, the, the wave uh, that surrounds the technology is not, you know, didn't start now. It started over a decade ago um, and longer ago. And so what we know is that humans respond to incentives and incentive design is what got us here, which is why the capitalist model and the corporate model drove so much innovation through aligning the incentives of capital and enabling um, innovation to flourish. The desert is essentially uh, the, the process that is required in order to refine the people and refine the technology, in my opinion. And that I think where we're, where we're coming out through this birthing process and where we are at in the current state of our society is that people have are, had enough and they are post-trust and they are post-truth. And that's at the moment, it's meaning that they're opting out and that's what's allowing for the polarization but what we're seeing now is the natural, you know, wave is that the response is that people are now realizing that it's up to us to evolve our societies. And that if you give people tools that reward them and are simple to use, so this is the fog behavioral model, you have to have a motivation. And I think people are motivated to make more or make the most of every day. Um, you have to have an ability, so you have to make it simple enough that people can understand it, and then you have to have triggers. Well, I think that 
2016 was a trigger for a number of people. I think the Brexit was a trigger for a number of people. The experience in Australia was a trigger for people um, of, of COVID. I think the pandemic it was a trigger for people. And I think a lot of people are saying, you know, what's it all about? And, you know, that's, you know, something that people weren't asking before because there wasn't necessarily the challenge or there was challenge, but it was like, okay, well, we haven't got any options. And they've seen a range of mad things happening from, you know, streets on, in New York, completely desolate that they could never have imagined happening. So I think that, yes, the exodus is happening the incentives are there and the rewards will be, you know, great for those who move first, but they'll still be great for those who follow afterwards because people want truth. People, you know, really do value knowing what's true and what's false. No one wants to be in a relationship where they can't trust. No one wants to be in a relationship or any business relationship or any other relationship where they don't know whether the other person is telling them the truth. And that's the reflexive world that we're in at the moment is nobody knows that the truth is not self-evident. And where people do look, they find whatever answer they want. They find the answer that reflects their current state of thinking. And that's very, very challenging for people. So I think that they will move with the incentives and they will learn, you know, it will be an emergent feature that consilience will emerge through having a true net and verifiable way of interacting with each other uh, that preserves our ability to, you know, be different and think differently and is not controlled by a company that is for profit uh, and is not controlled by a state that restricts your privacy and freedom. And I, I really think people want those things, not explicitly in the, at the meta level, but at the, I don't want to take the vaccine. I do want to take the vaccine. I want people, you know, like they have small decisions to make that if they could make them on the basis of truth that was verifiable that from a source that they can trust, and that will help us come to consensus. That's a great note to end on. Um, for the listeners and uh, for Nicholas, thank you for following us on this. And I'll just, uh, I'll end with a thought uh, <laughs> to ponder, which is the concept of truth might be different in different cultures. So for the Greeks, aletheia uh, means unconcealment or unforgetting, whereas in Hebrew, um, emet might be connected to amen, which means I assent or I ascribe um, different sort of resonances uh, associated with truth, bring out different aspects of it. But I think we can all agree that trust um, and truth, however defined, is something that it would be wonderful to, uh, to live more with. So thank you, uh, Nicholas. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And um, I hope that what I was saying made sense. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. 
Thank you for listening and see you next time.